Hey, good morning. Last week we began a, a brand new series that we titled Embrace Joy. You need a little joy in your life? 2020 has turned out quite differently than any of us ever anticipated, hasn't it? The COVID-19 pandemic, rioting and destruction in the streets of our major cities, social and political conflict, economic downturns, and more. And times like these can really wear us down. So you need a little joy? Well, joy happens to be the theme of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And my prayer is that your joy in the Lord will increase exponentially as we study this amazing letter. Last week, we uh, looked at just the first two verses of chapter 1 of Philippians. And today, through his joy-filled prayer for the community of believers in Jesus, we're, we're going to get another glimpse into the heart of Paul, a heart that was reborn and transformed to increasingly reflect the heart of God for the world. So follow along as I read verses 3 through 11 of Philippians chapter 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. This is God's word. Well, by way of outline this morning, we're, we're going to see that Paul's prayer was, first of all, a prayer of thankfulness in verses 3 through 5, and then a prayer of confidence in verse 6, a prayer of deep affection in verses 7 and 8, and then in verses 9 through 11, a prayer for abounding love. And as we enter into this passage, uh, will you please notice with me then that Paul's prayer for the Philippians was, first of all, a prayer of thankfulness. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, he writes. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you have people like this in your life? People that give occasion whenever they come to mind for you to smile and to give thanks to God for their very presence in your life. I really hope that you do because I do. And of course, my list begins with my mom and dad who are in heaven with Jesus now. And then there are my sister and brother and their families, my wife, my daughter, my son and his wife and our extended families. And then a whole parade of people down 
through the years, each of whom has been a, a blessing in some way in my life and has contributed something significant to my life. And you know what? You, the LifePoint Church family, you're on that list. I thank my God every time I remember you, which is every day. Well, let me pause right here and say that if you find it difficult to think of very many people in your life that cause you to give thanks to God, first of all, I'm sorry. But let me invite you to become part of LifePoint Church. Is it a perfect church? No, far from it. It's a church full of imperfect people like me, uh, who, by God's grace, are learning to love and accept and forgive each other and to be active participants together in the work that God has given us to do in our community and in our world, at the center of which is simply helping people, more and more people, to find and to follow Jesus. And I hope that you'll accept my invitation. Now back to Paul and the Philippian church. Paul Paul was always giving thanks for them, praying for them, for this reason, that they had established a warm and welcome history of partnership in spreading the good news about Christ from the very beginning of their relationship. We saw last week how that relationship had begun as Paul had a dream in which he saw a man from Macedonia calling out to him saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And they went. Uh, They journeyed to the Roman colony of Philippi where Paul and Silas and company were able to lead a Jewish businesswoman named Lydia uh, and her entire household to personal faith in Jesus Christ. And then a Roman jailer and his entire household as well, and both families were baptized as believers. And it seems like uh, it was from those two families that the church in Philippi had its beginning. And so Paul says in verses 3 to 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I mentioned last week that Paul's letter to the church in Philippi is, first of all, a, a thank you note. The focus of Paul's thanksgiving here is is the gift of an amazing partnership in the advance of the gospel that had been given to him by this church. And it's important that we understand the nature of this partnership. And so today I want you to see some of the essential dynamics that made it a source of such joy and such encouragement in Paul's life. The first dynamic has to do with the word that Paul employed to describe it. It's the Greek word koinonia. Perhaps you've heard it before. Its most simple meaning is to share something in common. This word shows up 19 times in the New Testament. It's most often translated fellowship. Now, if you asked a, a random sample of American Christians what they think fellowship is, I would venture a guess that most of the responses you received would center on social gatherings. 
So someone would say, oh, fellowship, that, that's when we gather as a church for a meal. Or someone else might answer, fellowship is that time before and after our worship services when we stand around and talk with each other, drinking coffee and eating donuts. In fact, so closely have we American Christians, of American evangelicals in particular, tied our understanding of fellowship to food that that many, if not most, church buildings have a dedicated space that's commonly called a fellowship hall. It's adjacent to the kitchen, it smells like stale coffee, and it's large enough for an all-church meal. And that's not all bad. You see, in the ancient world, as well as the modern world, eating together is a symbolic, is symbolic of friendship and, and of deep personal relationship. In fact, in Revelation 3.20, Jesus himself used dining as a metaphor for the, the kind of intimate friendship that he wants to have with each of us. He said, look, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and we'll share a meal together as friends. But in this case, Paul's employing the word koinonia to, to denote not just a friendship, but a real partnership where the Philippian believers had skin in the game. In Paul's words, from the first day until now, and their financial investment in the advancement of the gospel was not a one-time deal, but it included multiple deposits. Notice chapter 4, verses 15 to 16. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. To the church in Corinth, Paul described the generosity of the churches in Macedonia that included Philippi. When he wrote, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, to us. After Paul and his team left Philippi, the the church that continued to grow there apparently experienced severe persecution that led them to extreme poverty. And yet, in spite of their desperate circumstances, they not only sent generous financial gifts, but they also sent from their church a man named Epaphroditus, whom we'll get to know better in chapter 2. Epaphroditus was not only a courier for the Philippians' financial contribution, but he was also sent to stay and to provide ongoing personal assistance to Paul while he was under house arrest in Rome. Here's what Paul wrote in Philippians 4.18. He says, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, 
a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul's prayer for the Philippians then was a prayer of thankfulness for at least three reasons. First, the Philippian believers would always be special to Paul because they had believed in Jesus through his ministry. Second, they had demonstrated a warm love and friendship toward Paul that started while he was there and it just never stopped. Third, they had invested financially in the advance of the gospel through Paul and by sending one of their own to help Paul as part of his team. You know, maybe you've never thought of fellowship in terms of partnership in the gospel. And if so, let me say this, that eating donuts and drinking coffee together will never be the vehicle for the experience of the kind of partnership that Paul's describing. You and I will never discover the deeply satisfying quality of relationship that Paul and the Philippians experienced until, until we've got real skin in the real game, which is investing and working together to advance the message of the gospel, helping people here in Thurston County and around the world to find and to follow Jesus. And this is the reason that here at LifePoint, we've chosen the word partnership instead of membership for those who wish to formally unite with our church. Membership has its privileges, but partnership. Partnership involves shared responsibility, shared investment, shared risk, and shared reward. Personally, those for whom I most thank God and and with whom I feel the closest bonds of friendship and partnership are not those who are mere church attenders or those who stand apart from the church as self-appointed analysts and critics, but it's those who are and have been personally and financially invested in the, the health, the mission, the ministry of LifePoint Church. And let me say this, if, if you're ready to make that kind of investment here, I invite you to consider becoming a LifePoint Church partner. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to mylpclacy.com forward slash partner and follow the directions there. I, I hope you will. Secondly, Paul's prayer is a prayer of confidence. In verse 6, he writes, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What was this good work that Paul had, or that rather that God had begun in the lives of the Philippian believers? Well, it was their salvation. Paul was confident that that God had begun a good work in them, and, and so he was also confident that God would keep on perfecting that work in them until the day that they would see Jesus Christ face to face. This reminds us of the the now and the not yet nature of our salvation. The Bible tells us that if you've believed in Jesus, transferred your trust from your performance to his accomplishment on your behalf and for you at the cross, then you have been saved now 
from the penalty of your sin. Your, your sins are forgiven. You have peace with God. You've received the gift of eternal life. And the Bible calls that justification. It's just as if I had never sinned. The Bible also tells us that as a believer in Jesus, you're being saved now in the present from the very presence or the very power of sin, that that God by his spirit is progressively transforming your character, conforming you to the character of Jesus Christ, and that's called sanctification. And then the Bible says that one day you will be saved from the very presence of sin. When Christ returns or you die and you go to heaven. John the Apostle expressed that now and not yet dynamic when when he wrote, Beloved, we are God's children now. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And that's when the good work, this good work that Paul's talking about in Philippians 1.6, the good work that God began in you will be ultimately and finally perfected. Something about that moment of seeing Jesus as he really is will have that ultimate transformational effect so that we will, in that moment, be fully and finally conformed to his image. We will at last be like him. So listen, salvation is the work of God. It's it's not the result of your works for God. It's by grace that we are saved through faith. It's the gift of God. So what's your responsibility? Your responsibility is simply to cooperate with him in the work that he is perfecting in your life. In chapter 2, Paul wrote, And so, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only when I was with you, but even more now that I am absent, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is producing in you both the desire and the ability to do what pleases him. So you see, God is at work in us giving us the desire to do what pleases him and also giving us the power to do it. Desire and power we would not have on our own. And our role then is to work out in obedience what God is working in to our lives. Paul's confidence was in the ongoing work of God in the lives of the Philippian believers. The undeniable evidence that God had begun that work was their belief in Jesus, was their baptism in his name. And the progressive transformation of their personal values and priorities expressed then in tangible, sacrificial, voluntary generosity. Third, Paul's prayer is a prayer of deep affection. Deep affection. He writes in verses 7 to 8, It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. 
both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. As if he needs to defend the way he feels about the Philippian believers, he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. You know, many have pigeonholed Paul as a hardcore, kind of unfeeling theologian. And it's true that there were times when Paul had to come like that velvet-covered brick and speak in very terse, direct terms to some churches and some individuals within those churches about their doctrine and their conduct. And Paul took some arrows from some of them in return. But here in in Philippians 1, we we read Paul expressing his heart toward this community of believers, a, a tender heart of genuine affection. And notice the repetition of the word all. Not only in these verses, but in this whole first chapter, Paul was all in with this church, and they were all in with him. In my experience, some people will tell you that they're all in, but the Philippians demonstrated their devotion so often and so generously that it was undeniable. Notice how Paul describes it. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In that phrase, partakers with me, Paul uses a variation on the word koinonia that we saw earlier. The word is sun koinonas, and, and it points not only to a close partnership, but actually to another layer of relationship, which is close identification with each other that that results in deep sharing of the ups and downs of one another's lives. They shared the saving grace of God and Jesus Christ in common, to be sure. But if you read much of Paul, you know that he, he uses the word grace to describe his calling to be an apostle as well. See, because of his past history as a persecutor of the church, Paul cherished the transformation that God had brought about in his life through Christ. He cherished his calling as an apostle. And he regarded all of it as unanticipated, undeserved, unmerited gifts of God's great grace in his life. Nevertheless, and ironically, fulfilling that calling often cost him dearly. I mean, he was beaten, he was stoned with rocks, he was persecuted, he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned, he nearly died on many occasions. And still he regarded that calling as God's grace on his life. I wonder if you've ever considered your calling to serve the Lord, whether it's in the church or through the church, as a gift of God's grace to you. What if God asked you to do something completely out of the box? Would you consider that an expression of God's grace to celebrate and give give thanks to God about? 
As I was thinking about this, I remembered a, a song that was written about 20 years ago by an artist named Scott Wesley Brown, and and the title was Please Don't Send Me to Africa. <laughs> and here are the lyrics. Oh, Lord, I'm your willing servant. You know that I have been for years. I'm here in this pew every Sunday and Wednesday. I've stained it with many a tear. I've given you years of my service. I've always given my best. And I've never asked you for anything much, so, Lord, I deserve this request. Please don't send me to Africa. I don't think I've got what it takes. I'm just a man. I'm not a Tarzan. Don't like lions, gorillas, or snakes. I'll serve you here in suburbia in my comfortable middle-class life, but please don't send me out into the bush where the natives are restless at night. I'll see that the money is gathered. I'll see that the money is sent. I'll wash and stack the communion cups. I'll tithe 11%. I'll volunteer for the nursery. I'll go on the youth group retreat. I'll usher. I'll deacon. I'll go door to door. Just let me keep warming this seat. Well, what's the point? Maybe, maybe we all have our Africa that location or that place of service that if God ever actually asked us to go there or do that, we would not see it as a gift of his grace in our lives. So think about that with me for just a moment. Does it occur to you that perhaps adopting Paul's attitude might be a sign of spiritual growth in your life? That your unwillingness to do some things that you've been asked to do, whether by God or by a leader in the church, may be an indicator of a need for further growth in your life. That by your resistance, you're missing out on some blessings that God has in store for you. See, what Paul seems to be saying is that the Philippians' partnership in the gospel had remained constant and firm, regardless of the circumstances. His imprisonment might have been seen by others as a shameful thing. But the Philippians loved Jesus. They loved Paul. They loved the gospel, and they saw this moment in time as an opportunity for new expressions of generosity. And maybe this should also serve as a reminder to us that when those pastors and missionaries or parachurch workers, people in in other ministries whom we support are, are facing times of discouragement, maybe facing times of spiritual dryness, times when their faithfulness to their calling is not producing the fruit that they hope and pray for, that our consistent support and our constant expressions of love and encouragement matter enormously to them in their circumstances. So whenever Paul thought of the Philippian Christ followers, he he prayed for them. He felt an affectionate longing for them. I mean, who, who wouldn't? Only Jesus and the gospel can create that kind of fellowship, that kind of community, that kind of bond, that kind of partnership. I was reminded 
this week as I was studying this passage of a, a simple little chorus we used to sing back in the day. Maybe it expresses something of what Paul felt for these friends in Philippi. It, it went like this, very simple lyrics. I love you with the love of the Lord. Yes, I love you with the love of the Lord. I can see in you the glory of my King. And I love you with the love of the Lord. Fourth and finally, Paul's prayer for the Philippian believers was a prayer for abounding love. And here's where Paul's expression of his heart, I think, really reaches its its high point in this passage. Verse 9, And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul wants their love to abound. What does it mean for love to abound? That's that's a word you don't hear much anymore, except in the Bible or maybe in poetry. To abound is to go over and above or above and beyond. All expectations. Paul wanted their love to increase exponentially so that there would be among them and flowing out of them a superabundance, a surplus of love. And that phrase translated more and more implies that their love would not only grow in quantity, but it would also grow in quality that they would keep on growing to perceive and and to experience the higher values, the higher priorities, the higher requirements of love. We all as human beings deeply desire to love and to be loved, don't we? And yet our culture has pretty much defined love in terms of emotions and feelings. In fact, someone wants to find love as a feeling you feel when you feel you're about to feel a feeling you've never felt before. But when you think about it, our feelings are just kind of all over the map, aren't they? And the feelings associated with love, they come and go. They can't be permanently sustained. And yet we hold on fiercely to this definition of love as a feeling. And it's among the primary reasons that that I think in the Western world that we witness so much confusion in our sexuality and so much hurt and disillusionment in relationships, whether it's our marriages, our families, or, or in the church. Paul's prayer is that their ever-increasing, ever-intensifying love would be characterized not by mere emotion, but first by knowledge. He wanted them to grow beyond sentimentality to real mindfulness and genuine thoughtfulness in their love. Knowledge, then, needs to be accompanied by the dimension of discernment that enables us to distinguish what is right, what is best, what is of real value. And again, because our culture subscribes to a definition of love that's that's almost entirely emotional, our sense of love can often lead us to places that are unhealthy and damaging to ourselves 
and to others. It can cause us to become confused with with regard to the morality and the ethics of love. Paul's prayer for the Philippians is that their love will be characterized by a discernment that would enable them to see what is true and right, to, to cut through the fog of emotion and and moral and ethical confusion. Paul wanted them and God wants us to be to be wise and intelligent people who know how to love as he loves. In the end, Paul wants the Philippians to be inwardly and outwardly pure, free from accusation for that day when they would stand before the Lord and filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. See, we will be judged to be pure, not because we ourselves are pure, but only because the blood of Christ has cleansed us from all of our sin. We will be blameless, not because we are without blame, but only because Jesus took our blame upon himself at the cross. We're filled with the fruit of righteousness because Jesus has declared us righteous on the basis of our faith in him and has robed us, wrapped us in his righteousness. And because the Holy Spirit is producing the fruit of righteousness in and through our lives. And all of it is to the glory and the praise of God. So Paul's joy-filled, joy-filled prayer, a prayer of thankfulness, a prayer of confidence, a prayer of deep affection, and a prayer for abounding love. A life point, I thank God for you and for your partnership in the gospel. My prayer for you is that your love for God, for each other and for the communities God has called us to reach with the gospel will grow and increase exponentially. That, that you will grow in a love that is intelligible, intelligent, uh, knowledgeable, discerning, and insightful. I pray that you'll always be able to recognize the highest and the best, and that you will live sincere, pure, and blameless lives until the day of Jesus Christ. I want to see your lives continue to fill up with, with true goodness produced by the power that Jesus Christ works in us so that through you, God will be praised and Jesus Christ will receive all the glory. May each of us, may each of you embrace joy. Have a great week.